I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I'm as bad as hell, but I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? What of a warrior? This is the Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mundus. <laughs> Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the host of the Stupid Camper Show, Annie Goodman and Matthew Sachs. Woohoo! Monday, November 10th, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. Let's give it up for the Stupid Cancer News Team. I'm Kenny King, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listen to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. And I'm Maureen Sweet, manager of programs and operations here at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at Chemodex, so send me your questions and feedback at any time using the hashtag SCRadio. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year, so... Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. And on tonight's show, stupid inflammatory breast cancer. Join us for an in-depth conversation about this outlier disease with Terry Arnold and Dr. Wendy Woodward to discuss this often misdiagnosed disease and survivor's college on Holly St. Clair. All righty, folks. Welcome. Good evening. Hello. Hello. How is everybody tonight? Doing well. How are you? What? Well. Kenny had something to say. <laughs> stop thinking, Kenny. Yeah, I will stop right now. Well, our big news, of course, is uh, we crossed the magic number of 250,000 likes on Facebook. That's definitely the magic number. That is a, if there is a yes. magic number on Facebook, that's that a is, badass number it's to a cross. Pretty, it's pretty good. Really Quarter impressive. of a million. When was the 100,000 party? That is a very good question. I feel like it was... It was a time. Spring? <laughs> 2013? Like 18 months ago or so? You, Sean, you were at that party. Do you remember when it was? I was. I don't remember when. You can only end that with a question. <laughs> it happened. It was definitely in 2013. Right. I can confirm that much. Right. So we pretty much more than doubled. 150%. We basically have more than we did. <laughs> yeah, <well. laughs> we definitely I'm going to go with that pattern of increasing people liking our page. Facebook.com slash... Stupid cancer, quarter million. Mm-hmm. Here's to uh, here's to progress. And if you don't like us yet, you can be in the next three quarters of a million. Yeah. So <laughs> on a rise to seven figures. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, I just got back with Ali RVV programs on a, a one day trip to Burbank. I highly do not recommend one day trips to Burbank from New York, mm-hmm. but it was very successful. We met with the senior leadership at ABC Family, producers of the Chasing Life series, starring our friend Tali Ricci. And lo and behold, at the table discussing things during the part where we're discussing 
things we're discussing about 2015. Mm-hmm. They pop the answer. <laughs> they popped the answer. They said yes. The answer was the answer to the question, which is, will Chasing Life be picked up for a second season in 2015? Not a second. So there's right now there's season one, part one, and season one, part two. Would there be a season two? And at the table discussing this, they all looked at their phones simultaneously and said yes, about 10 minutes in to our meeting. So I found that blindly serendipitous that they would find out at the moment we're talking about the table. So congratulations to Italia and the, the, the crew and the cast of the show and ABC Family on uh, Chasing Life coming back. Season 2, September 2015. Awesome. Pretty exciting. So, and they will be very heavily involved, rest assured, with CancerCon, which is going to be quite amazing. So, which all in all, come to. Yes, CancerCon, of course. We mentioned all these, but the uh, exciting part about CancerCon is we have 14... Exhibitor registrations. Fourteen exhibitors already. That's yeah, that's it's coming up on. It's not too far from the halfway point for our normal no. exhibitor number. So, yeah, we're still sorting out the tables. Our our VP of programs, Ellie Ward, did a walk through this week, and we'll be walking through with Matt and Kenny later this week. So we'll be figuring out exactly what that number is. But fourteen exhibitors so far want to meet you at CancerCon, and they're very excited about it. Yeah, and if you are a nonprofit, even a for-profit, a corporation in the digital health, medical, pharma, survivor world, please come, exhibit yourself, show your face, show your brand, 550 attendees, three and a half days. It's it's worth worth the money. The money's cheap to begin with, but it's worth the money. Yep, it's a win, 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 win. CancerCon.org. CancerCon.org. And, uh, yeah, we we have a bit of a field trip coming up this week Mm -hmm. um, for uh, six of the staff. Two thirds actually that reduces to I suppose, <laughs> I suppose if you don't do core Fun that, attraction. Um as opposed if you don't do core, then uh, yeah, two thirds of the staff um will be in Denver uh this week at the Critical Mass annual meeting, Critical Mass, which is uh a think tank, thought leadership group of uh academics and physicians and so uh social workers and oncologists, nurses and patient advocate leaders who come together once a year to, um, you know, think. <laughs> and talk. <laughs> and discuss talk standards and, and brainstorm about the great ideas and how we're pushing the outcomes for young adult cancer into a better place, collaboratively. Mm-hmm. And it's helmed by my good friend and mentor, Heidi Adams. Heidi Adams, who is the original founder of uh, planetcancer.org, which was, uh, for, for the time being, the place to go for young adults for about a decade. She then took over the um, Livestrong Young Adult Alliance as it was emerging for all that stuff. And then it kind of spit out Critical Mass as a nonprofit organization. This is their third conference. I think they're having like 300 attendees. It's going to be big. Yeah, it's going to be good. And they have a really great uh, lineup of speakers and talent. And uh, we have a poster, don't we? There is a poster. It's shaped like a square. And it tells you all about stupid cancer. I think it was nice. Didn't I yeah, it? it looks. You did design okay, it. Okay, I forget yep. what's on it though, but I remember it, was it has a lot of our program offerings. In there. One might argue that would be relevant. Yeah, it's a poster, poster all about <laughs> stupid cancer. Yeah, who would who would have thought? Very nice, very nice. Um, anyway, Mallory Rivera here in the studio. How are you? Hello, I'm just Dandy. Yeah. Yeah. What's going on? Uh, nothing too insane. I now have a dog in Brooklyn. Moving things you along. Nothing too insane. I now have a dog in Brooklyn. That is an oxymoron. <laughs> I now have a dog in Brooklyn. My uh, rescue has made the journey from Long Island to Brooklyn. What's your dog's name? Jesse. 
Jesse. Yes. I can remember that. Yes. Are you Jesse's girl? Do you sing that song by all oh, the God. time? <laughs> we more so change it to I'm covered in Jesse's hair. Oh, what? Oh, okay. Uh, that makes sense. So. If you ever need advice <laughs> on having a dog in Brooklyn, don't come to me. <laughs> I'll give you the wrong advice. No, don't talk to Kenny about dogs. Yeah. He gets hives. Anyway, <laughs> on that silent note, Good announcement. Dr. Sean Shapiro here in the office. Hello. In the studio. Ooh, he's got his PhD over the weekend. And he's wearing a stupid cancer hat, too. Mm-hmm. It's really smart. SMRT. It's got a little fuzzy on the top of it. What are you working on? Besides um, raising a lot of money. Uh, well, I was actually distracted. I just saw that there may be a new... Oh, no, it's sorry. I thought it would be a new Power Rangers movie, but it's just the pink Power Ranger, um, Kimberly, raising money for a new film. Oh, false hmm. alert. <laughs> Damn, and I had oh. my hopes up. I was getting really excited. That would have been pretty exciting. Yeah, but uh, in terms of more relevant news, uh, the VIP Club is up and running. We're That's super right. Let's excited. Let's talk about the VIP Club for CancerCon. Yeah, um, it's a great way to get involved with CancerCon and stupid cancer in general um, and ensure the success of the event. So it's a great way to reach out to your family, friends, colleagues, coworkers, all that good stuff to, to help fundraise and, and make um, CancerCon the best young adult cancer event it can be. And how does one sign up for the CancerCon VIP Club? You visit CancerCon.org, and if you scroll down, you'll see the section dedicated to VIP Club and several buttons on um, how to learn more, and I will be reaching out to you to let you know how to get set up. Or if you're ready to sign up, um, you can just hit fundraise, and we'll send you a welcome kit to get started. That's really cool. Yeah. Whose idea was that? Uh, was it yours? I don't think so. Was it Allie? All of the good ideas come out of Kenny. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take credit. Yeah, I'll give Kenny credit for that. <laughs> Wonderful. In any case, well, that's our banter, and let's, uh, let's kick off the show here. We've got a really great show today, and we're starting off uh, with Tolly Sinclair. Tolly uh, was diagnosed six months after graduating from college. Not that there's a good time to get cancer. Uh, Tolly was diagnosed with stage three melanoma, which is the number one cancer in young adults. She's here with us tonight. A year into her treatment to share her story and talk about life on a clinical trial. Please welcome Tolly St. Clair. Tolly. Hello. Welcome to the circus. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing well. How are you guys? We're we're really great. It's a, an honor to have you on the show. It's, it's it's not that common that we get people in active treatment or within a year um, to talk to us. And I'm sure when someone told you you had cancer a year ago, they didn't say you'd be on a radio show a year later. Uh, no, they, I think they kind of failed to mention that, unfortunately. But that's all right. <laughs> Happy to be Hang here on, regardless. Yeah, we, we want to make sure every oncologist tells every young adult, it's possible you could be on a cancer <laughs> radio show now that you're in this club that no one wants to belong to. Um, but we're, we're doing our best. It's hard to reach all the doctors to make them aware of that's the standard of care to talk about our radio show. Um, but uh, you have a very interesting story group in Singapore. You went to Trinity University in San Antonio. Uh, you, were, uh, you, you were treated up in Boston. You're now in Florida, um, all over the place. But yet you were, you know, graduated in May of 2013, which was not too long ago, and you were diagnosed in November with stage 3 melanoma. I'd love you to share with our listeners, what, what was that summer like for you? How did all this come to pass? Um, so I was actually, like many others, um, misdiagnosed twice um, before and then uh, got a biopsy on a mole that just had kind of changed and didn't go away like the other doctors said they would. Um, 
and then finally got the biopsy back, and the dermatologist kind of freaked out over the phone and told me to come in the next morning ASAP, um, and I did, and then she, you know, referred me out to somebody else. They didn't know at that point it was stage three. They, She thought it was just going to be stage one, a quick little, you know, kind of bigger surgery, and then I would be fine. Um, so I went to MD Anderson, actually, and then they thought that the biopsy was a little bit worse than what the dermatologist had originally thought. Um, so they went ahead and took a biopsy of my lymph nodes as well, and unfortunately one of those came back positive. Um, so in so in December I had my first surgery, January I had my second one, had all my lymph nodes taken out, um, and I thought since only one of them was positive that they that, that would kind of be the end of the story. Um, but pretty much every doctor I talked to said, no, you should definitely do something. Um, and pretty much the only two options were chemo or the clinical trial that I'm in now. Um, so I went ahead with the clinical trial and they said, do, do be close to family. And at that time I was living in San Antonio, uh, working and, and everything didn't have any family too close by. Um, so they suggested I go back to Florida, start the clinical trial and kind of do things there. So that um, that summer was a long one. <laughs> it, um, there, there's not a whole lot to do in my town, and not a whole lot of people to talk to about kind of my situation. So it's uh, it was a little rough, but getting better now. And if I'm reading this correctly, as if this wasn't interesting enough, and that's a, probably not not a fair word, uh, your father was also diagnosed with bladder cancer the same month as you. Yep, he was diagnosed about a week or, I can't remember if it was a week or two before, so we were going through, you know, okay, what to do about him, Um, and then mine kind (laughs) of popped up, Um, so my mom, uh, you know, was in complete hell, you know, still is, Um, but he he did three rounds of chemo originally, and then the doctor would have liked to take his bladder out, but he didn't want to do that, so he was also following the guidelines of a clinical trial while actually not being in a clinical trial at Mass General. Um, and then he finished up his third and f- uh, sorry fourth and fifth round of chemo and first and second round of radiation at Mass General this past July. So he's officially done and clear, thankfully. Um, and so my treatment's now just once every three months, which isn't too bad, um, but it'll end in June. So there's always a, a stigma around melanoma with the general public thinking, well, you probably tanned and you probably did this and probably right. did that. Did you face any of that? Um, well, I'm um, well, probably one of the fairest people that you'll meet. <laughs> so um, all the doctors were like, well, you, you clearly don't tan a lot. Like, did you when you were younger? <laughs> and I, you know, I really never did. And my family was always super diligent about, you know, putting sunscreen on if we were going to be out in the sun and everything like that. Um, Singapore, like, is pretty much on the equator. Um, and that is where I went to high school and did sports. Um, but it, you know, that type of thing never really crosses your mind when you're in high school. Um so, yeah, I mean, I faced some of that, and I think mostly people were just surprised, um, especially my closer friends. They were just surprised that they knew, you know, knew somebody with cancer who was their age. Um, I'm yeah, I'm the only one of my friends that I know of that has something big medically going on. Um, thankfully, I guess, the only one. Um, but, yeah, I faced a little bit of that, but not too much. It was more just, wait, what? Like, that's, you know, that doesn't happen to people our age ever. 
Did you did you get a chance to go back to the doctors that misdiagnosed you and tell them they're idiots? Um, you know, I did. Uh, <laughs> I um, I nice. talked because one of the nice doctors. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean like nicely tell them they're idiots, but at the same time explain to them that like you misdiagnosed me. Yeah, no, I I definitely did. Um, it was actually the doctor at my college. Um, she was the second doctor who missed it. Um, and she had actually, like, frozen, actually, like, or tried to freeze it off with, um, like, heavy-duty stuff, and it obviously didn't work. Um, so I had called back in. I was asking about my medical cards, and it was just the nurse that wasn't the actual doctor, and she was like, oh, how are you doing? I was like, well, actually, I got a melanoma, and Dr. Wilder missed it, you know, and it was kind of like, she was like, oh, well, good luck with that, you know, and obviously, like, kind of put her on the spot. Um but yeah, it uh, it was a shame we missed it. That's for sure. Well, let's let's get into this uh, trial that you on. Trial matching is something that's very um, interesting to me because it's it's quite rare, and there are lots of different factors into it actually being, you know, done in the first place or being made aware of things that are out there, and let alone getting randomized to be available and you know to get it and. The actual enrollment process, which can be like taking 11 mortgages simultaneously. Um, I was hoping you could talk with us about your experience getting matched and randomized and put on the trial. Okay. Um, so MD Anderson, the people who had done the the surgeries, suggested I you know do something. So and they suggested this one particular clinical trial. Um, the third option would have been uh, like a BRAF study, but I don't I don't have the BRAF gene, so I wasn't eligible for that one. Um, but this clinical trial is, um, it's at, it was actually like kind of previously done in Europe. Um, the drug is Ipilimumab, it be for short, um, and it's that drug which is not FDA approved for stage three patients, but is FDA approved for stage four patients and prolongs their life and quality of life and everything. Um, so it's that drug versus kind of the current standard of care for melanoma, which is interferon, which is pretty heavy-duty chemo um, and kind of knocks you out um, for like pretty much a solid year. Um, So my experience with that was um, the doctor at MD Anderson really recommended it, um, recommended a specific doctor I see in Miami um, since I was going to be moving back to Florida. Um, So I went and met with the doctor, and and he's awesome. I'm a huge fan um, of Mount Sinai. um, And you know, had to do, like, typical scans and blood work and whatnot, um, and then finally came back, you know, and everything was fine and good to go. Um, so they, I mean, it was it was pretty quick. It was a matter of, I think, like a two-week turnaround where I first met with him, got the scans done, did all the blood work, and he said, okay, you know, yeah, you're good to go. We'll randomize you today, call you with the results. Um, for some reason, I'm not sure why, I really thought that I would get the chemo drug, um, and be pretty kind of knocked out for a while. Um, but th- thankfully now, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I'm glad I didn't get that. Um, and IPI has been pretty easy on your system. It's immunotherapy, um, which, you know, I'm sure you guys all know about, but it's definitely a lot easier on your system and really kind of the only big side effects here, like tiredness. Um, thankfully haven't had any, like, colitis, but um, just fatigue and myalgias, like, kind of the two pretty big ones, and I definitely would have experienced that with chemo. So um, overall, it hasn't. It really hasn't been kind of that 
bad of a process, thankfully. I'm sure it could have been a lot worse. Um, but thankfully, the doctor who's running the clinical trial in Miami has been super open and, you know, honest about what to expect and just very, um, very helpful. Right, because the, the 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 notion of trials, and I, I I'd like to spend a little time on this, is you know, tr- just even the the phrase clinical trial. Did you ever have you ever heard that before prior to you know any of this at all? Did that did, did those two words put together in a sentence made any sense to you? Um, yeah, my my mom actually has uh, Wegener's granulomatosis, which is a pretty rare disease. Um, so she was actually on a clinical trial. So unfortunately, my family is <laughs> pretty um, medical savvy. Um, so yeah, clinical trial. You know, I've heard since I was very young. Um, I, if you would have asked me kind of a year, well, a year ago, uh, after first being diagnosed, if I would do a clinical trial, I would have said absolutely not. Um, you know, I just I didn't want to take the chance, and you know, why kind of risk something when you don't know? You know, you don't know what to expect 20 years down the line, or you know, or a year down the line. Um, but it came, it became pretty apparent that all the doctors they would suggest doing, and if they had a daughter, they would point her in the clinical trial route. Um, they're pretty hopeful for, um, ipilimumab for stage three patients. So, um, you know, and that's (laughs) why you're going to doctors is to get their opinion. And so they all, they were all really confident, um, that I should do the clinical trial and, you know, hopefully get matched to Ipi and, um, you know, thankfully they've been right so far. Um, so for me, it wasn't too daunting. Um, you know, I also didn't have, there weren't like five options to choose from. It was, you know, do this or that or nothing. And, you know, you decide. So it was pretty easy. So reading a little bit about IPI, and I just basically have what I have here in your bio, I see that it's a form of immunotherapy. Um, and we've talked to a few different um, experts and organizations about immunotherapy. And I've heard we've heard really good things generally about the side effects and how they're much less than with chemotherapy. What's been your experience as an immunotherapy patient? It's it's really not too bad. Um, you know, I can't, I've obviously never gone through chemo, so I can't really compare. Um, but visually, I mean, treatment schedule-wise, um, for the introduction phase, I had um, treatment every three weeks. So once every three weeks, just go in and get an IV, you know, be hooked up for about an hour and a half. Um, you know, it didn't get sick or anything that day or the next few days. If anything, I was just a little tired, um, kind of three weeks or excuse me, three days later. Um, and then after those four treatments were done, um, the first four, then now I'm just on the maintenance phase, which is treatment once every three months, which really isn't too bad. Um, I'm definitely still tired. (laughs) Um, and naps are, are wonderful. Um, but I mean, otherwise, it really hasn't been too bad. Um, I go back every um, in between the treatments every six weeks for blood work, um, and that's just really kind of a check-in. How are you doing? Nothing crazy going on. Great. See you soon. Um, so my, I mean, I feel like I'm, I've been truly lucky. Um, my treatment schedule hasn't been too bad. It hasn't been too rigorous. My body seems to be adjusting fine. You know, there's not weight loss or weight gain or hair loss, it's um, it's really pretty easy on your body compared to chemo and radiation. Well, that's progress in terms of how far medicine's come. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. You're not vomiting and experiencing neuropathy and, yeah, that's it's good news. That's good news. 
So what is your uh, what's your cancer status right now? You said that you're kind of in a maintenance phase. Are you still do you still have active cancer that you're main? Um, kind of in- so my last scan was clear, thankfully. So that's good. Um, okay. They haven't used the term remission, and I don't know mm-hmm. if that's just not used for melanoma. Or I mean, I asked my doctor, am I in remission now? And he was like, well, you know, uh, he can really give me a straight answer. So I stopped asking that question. Um, okay. But they think um, they think there's it's almost a fifty fifty chance that something will come back within the next five years. Um, and you know, if nothing does, then after the first five years, like numbers are looking pretty good. Um, so it's just kind of a matter of getting through <laughs> the first five years and you know being stable and not having anything come back. Because um, if it does come back, it will probably be in you know an organ somewhere, and that obviously right. won't be too good. Right. So let's let's take the, the last couple of minutes to talk about uh, how this has affected you as a young adult. Obviously, we try to make the point every single time we do this show. Every show kicks off with a survivor story like yourselves. And, um, you know, l- let's talk about relationships and fertility and cost of care, which are hard enough to deal with when you're not sick. And right. through that lens, how has this, how has being not 80 <laughs> going through this, <laughs> been for you with respect to all of those, you know, pre-existing challenges to deal with when you're well? Right. Um, so I, uh, in terms of relationships, I feel like the whole process has definitely strengthened rela- most of my relationships in terms of friendships. Um, you know, I think, like, thankfully I have really good friends and they've been there, you know, whenever I needed them to be and, you know, they're always up for a chat or, Kind of whatever I need, thankfully, they've been there, so that's been awesome. Um, and my family, I mean, I the whole past year has been <laughs> a lot for the four of us. I have one sister. Um, for, it's been a lot for the four of us, but we've kind of made it through stronger than ever, so that's awesome as well. Um, uh, in terms of boys, um, uh, kind of a long answer, but um, there there was a guy, and he... Um, has been a good friend, but it won't be continuing as a relationship, unfortunately. Um, in terms of work, um, once I figured out I was going to do the clinical trial um, and that I needed to be in Miami every six weeks, um, um, I needed to resign from my job, which was in San Antonio. Um, I was hoping to return after kind of the first three months after the in- induction phase, but um, that wasn't I financially not possible to do. Um, so that's a shame because um, it's a great company. Um, in terms of fertility, they don't really have any, um, I guess, information about how immunotherapy and MP affect fertility. Um, I'm hopeful <laughs> that it won't, you know, affect anything, hopefully. Um, I mean, it shouldn't because immunotherapy boosts up your immune system instead of, you know, killing off everything. So it shouldn't, the doctors say they, it shouldn't have any effect on it, um, and I really hope they're right because I would like to have kids in the future one day. Um, but that seems like a long time <laughs> away now, at least. Um, so it's it's definitely changed my perspective in terms of work and, you know, kind of how I want to live my life um, in terms of exercise and taking care of my body and not that I you know, did a whole lot of things, bad things before, but just now I'm pretty super conscious about working out and eating the right things. Um, And so that hasn't been a bad change at all. Um, And in terms of work, 
um, I just, I guess I would, you know, I'm sure everybody's heard this before, you know, you would like to do something that matters. Um, and now that's, that's absolutely the case. Not that I wasn't doing that before, but, um, I would like to work with a cancer organization in the future and be some sort of advocate, um, you know, maybe something with immunotherapy, maybe something with melanoma. Um, I'm kind of open to anything at the moment, um, but just trying to get there and, you know, kind of leave your mark on the world and everything, much like you guys are doing. Well, well thank you for that. Someone thanks for doing something good. Yay! <laughs> and what was your uh, degree when you graduated? It was in business admin with concentrations in international business and marketing. So right up the business okay. world. You might actually be one of those people that winds up doing what they majored in, which is kind of impressive. Yeah, which is crazy, I know. <laughs> yep, I studied Spanish, still don't speak it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, with the few remaining minutes left, um, do you blog, do you write, do you journal? How do you channel the anger and the anxiety? What What are your coping mechanisms to, to get by? Um, working out is probably definitely number one. Um, I do a whole lot of yoga. Um, so that's that's kind of the major thing I do write, but it's more in kind of like a journal format versus blogging and um, kind of putting it out there, more internal for sure. Um, and I've tried, I mean, I've tried, thankfully, like I guess relatively recently I found you guys and that's been like a huge blessing um, just because there isn't, um, at Andy Anderson they re- couldn't really hook me up with anybody for some reason that like was my, you know, about my age going through the same thing and same thing in my hospital in Miami. It just it doesn't seem like <laughs> there's people my age going through this, um, which obviously there are, but I just somehow not in my area. Um, so finding you guys and like listening to you guys has really helped and I, mean, I feel like I have your podcast from like 2011 on my phone, which I know is <laughs> crazy. But um, right. you guys have helped a lot. Writing has definitely helped, and working out is by far kind of the best medicine, at least for me at the moment. Well, we are really thrilled, A, that you're here, of course, but B, that you were courageous enough to come on the show and tell us your story. Um, it, it's really amazing to hear this kind of feedback from the people who are actually helping us. We're so caught up on our day-to-day running the company that we tend to lose sight sometimes as to the impact we make, and it means so much that you are you know, so kind in sharing that with us. Um, and we do hope you're able to make it out to Denver next year. We hope you're feeling well enough. And, again, like being on a trial is something very exciting because clearly it's progress. If you're able to get by in a way that's less, uh, you know, I guess maybe taxing on your lifestyle than it used to be, then clearly we're making some serious progress with treatment. So thank you so much for joining us tonight. Tali St. Clair uh, diagnosed six months after graduating from college in uh, November 2013. Stay tuned, Melanoma, joining us tonight. Thank you, and uh, God bless. Take care, Tali. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Okay. All right, Kenny. Now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events happening nationwide. Something to be happening next to the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. We have a bunch of stuff happening, Matt. We have meetups in Garfield, Cupertino. We have a surrogacy town hall here at Stupid Cancer headquarters. We have one in Invergrove Heights, Houston, Denver, and Anchorage. Very nice. Cancer is lonely, and we've got a cure for that. Yes, we're talking about Instapeer, our free mobile app that brings instant, anonymous, one-to-one peer support for anyone 
affected by any cancer. Visit instapeer.org and sign up to join our beta testing community right now, instapeer.org. And you can immortalize yourself in the app as a beta squad backer with a tax-deductible donation of $500. That's instapeer.org. If you haven't seen it, we've launched a newsfeed aggregator on Pinterest for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org forward slash feed. Cancer's expensive. We're proud to announce cancermademebroke.com, a national partnership with Give Forward, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser. You didn't ask to get sick, and your community really does actually want to help you. Visit cancermadebebroke.com to learn more and start your personal fundraiser today. It's always a good time to stock up on stupid cancer gear. Visit stupidcancerstore.org anytime and stay nice and warm with all new products and styles to choose from. We've got our skateboard, and don't forget about Flip, the cancer bird, our latest plushie mascot. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear stupid cancer. And that That is your stupid Stupid cancer news. All right, we've got a great show now. Not that it hasn't been a great show today. But joining us for the uh, second half of the show, Terry Arnold is the founder and full-time volunteer of the IBC Network Foundation. She started the nonprofit organization to help fund research for inflammatory breast cancer. She didn't set out to start a charity, but it is her way of honoring those taken by this horrible disease and giving hope to those still fighting it. Joining her, Dr. Wendy Woodward is the Associate Professor of Radiation Oncology and the Section Chief for the Breast Cancer Radiation Oncology Service at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And, as if that's not fancy enough, the Deputy Director of the Morgan Welsh Inflammatory Breast Cancer Clinic and Research Program. Her research is directed at the understanding of the mechanisms of radiation resistance of breast cancer stem cells in inflammatory and non-inflammatory breast cancer. Wow, I just sounded really smart. Say the same thing I didn't even write. Please welcome this Answer show, Wendy Woodward and Terry Arnold. Ladies. Thank you. It's like when news anchors just read from the teleprompter and they just sound so intelligent, but they have no idea what they're saying. I'm. <laughs> you sounded well, great, Matt. Absolutely. Right. I, I, I'm really trying. I'm really trying. Uh, this is actually our very first show across 200, 327 episodes on inflammatory breast cancer. And I, I almost feel like I owe the breast cancer the apology because it is clearly something that is under-discussed, and we do our best on this show to discuss the under-discussed and make them discussed to begin with. So it's sort of like the level of playing field here. We're super um, excited to be here and that you're giving it the time. It's really exciting. No, and, and I mean, again, like I think we, we try not to hype October too much, which is why we don't really focus a lot on breast cancer in October. We just kind of make fun of it and all the pink nonsense. <laughs> But when we do talk about metastatic and triple negative and, and BRCA and, and these outlier cancers that aren't really part of the mainstream dialogue in October, it's not really relevant to talk about them during October. And I think that IBC is something that needs to be understood better. There's a huge community of women affected by it, and their caregivers and partners and, and spouses and friends and kids and parents. Uh, so let's just get started with, uh, let's start with Dr. Woodward. What is inflammatory breast cancer and how is it different? Well, inflammatory breast cancer is an aspect of the staging system, which basically means that the cancer presented or the first symptoms were that the breast was red, uh, it might be swollen, it might have an effect that looks like the skin of an orange, um, but that you really see those clinical uh, signs on exam rather than the patient presenting with a mass or a lump or an abnormal mammogram, which is more typical. So that's the 
formal definition for an inflammatory breast cancer. It's a part of the staging system and that it presents with erythema or podorange and um, involvement of the skin. And how how is it specifically presented when there are younger women because they're not getting mammograms or detected? Or I mean, there's clearly some lack of Almost diligence. independent because- of age, it presents the same way because it's so rapid in its onset. And so even if you're having routine mammograms, you may still have the onset of an inflammatory breast cancer be that from one day to the next you woke up with a swollen red breast. And, you know, you might have had a mammogram six months ago that's completely fine. You do see more of it in younger women who aren't getting mammograms where, you know, exactly that. They might describe, well, it seemed just a little bit red, and then the next thing you knew it was swollen, and the whole breast was red, and the skin had sort of changed that texture. So it's really a very different clinical story than what you see with non-inflammatory breast cancer where you might feel a mass or have that abnormal mammogram. Right, and we also talk about how you're only uh, diagnosable at the mercy of your primary care who takes you seriously and has the literacy to do so. Uh, yeah, which is not always it. the case, unfortunately, because it's so rare. And to be fair right. to them, the list of things that a red breast could be is very long, and most things are far more common than inflammatory breast cancer. So the knee-jerk response is, well, that's probably mastitis even when that makes no clinical sense whatsoever. You're talking to a 60-year-old woman whose kids are grown, um, but it's still sort of the, hmm, must be an infection, here's some antibiotics response to it, rather than, wow, this is an emergency, we should get a biopsy and really be clear and definitive about what's going on. Right. So that takes us into great segue to Terry, who herself was diagnosed with right inflammatory breast cancer in August of 07, just six months after stupid cancer was founded. How interesting. Um, actually, that's this relationship you know we had, right, Matthew? <laughs> <laughs> um, so you went through chemotherapy, double mastectomy, daily radiation. You went through this actual process. Tell us about it. Well, I did, and Dr. Woodward happened to be my doctor, so I'm excited to get to, to talk to her and, and share this because many women, like she mentioned earlier, the doctors will be looking for that peel to orange, and, and, and sometimes doctors will say, this is what IBC looks like. You don't have it. Um, our symptoms are kind of vague, and I woke up one morning, with, it was as if my size C cut bra had just suddenly wouldn't fit on one side. The whole thing was like, so I just drew a circle around it, and it was puffed, and that one breast was slightly bigger, just enough to be different. And I thought I'd hurt myself because, you know, something that sudden, it would make sense that you think it's an injury. I went to the doctor the very next day, and he told me I had a pituitary gland infection in my brain. It was making, uh, it was impacting my mammary gland in my in my breast. I said, "Well, wouldn't it make both the breasts?" As he put it in his technical term, "go wonky." Um, I said, "Well, wouldn't it make both of them both of them go wonky?" Because well, maybe tomorrow the other one would be this way. But he put me on a low dose antibiotic uh, for eight weeks and told me to come back. Well, I, I didn't wait that long to keep coming back because my breast was rapidly changing uh, daily. Um, and I was misdiagnosed by five specialists in four months before I finally got to someone who said, you know, maybe you've got breast cancer. And? <laughs> and, and it turned out I did. I know. And at one point I, I said, you know, could this be breast cancer? And one of the doctors said, don't get silly on me. You don't have any family history. You know, I was 49 years old. I nursed five babies. I was slim. You know, breast cancer 
they didn't think I was really a risk for breast cancer. They really thought I had an odd infection. So, but I did end up having cancer in both my breasts. One was triple negative IBC. The other breast was general breast cancer, but uh, triple negative. I went through six months of chemotherapy, had a double mastectomy, no reconstruction, which is really controversial in IBC to have reconstruction for many reasons to discuss. And then I had six weeks of daily radiation. Well, Dr. Wilbur personally kicked my booty. <laughs> you know what? I, you know, I, that's what it took. And I'm very fortunate that um, everything worked. Unfortunately, my outcome of good health at seven years is not common, but I very passionately want that to be more common. And it's why I spend the time I doing what I do. And I'm glad to be here with you. And I get why you guys don't do so much about breast cancer. I make fun of pink temper too, because we're a little pink weary. And so how do you come along and say, oh, by the way, there's this one that we kind of forgot to talk about. And we don't know what to do. We don't have to test for it. So it's t- definitely time to me to grow that conversation up. Well, I do want to go back to what you said before because it was disturbing that the reconstruction didn't happen. Isn't that mandatory or was it mandatory back in 2007? Well, I was told that not to have reconstruction at all. Uh, the doctor who originally diagnosed me was also with Dr. Wilbert at MD Anderson, Christopher Finale. He's now up at Philly. Matter of fact, we got to fund some of his research today. I was very excited to get to do that. It's been a banner day for me. But uh, I was told to not do reconstruction because you can imagine with the skin involvement, IBC starts with skin presentation. So you've got skin involvement. And so to do reconstruction, then you've got basically a time schedule that's sort of trumping your care because that in itself dictates a level of time stamps. And so the best way to explain it simply, short on the radio, is let's get all your treatment done and get all those timestamps done. And then, unfortunately, we may have to go back and, and do a separate invasive surgery to get your reconstruction. That way, we've kind of got our ducks in a, in a good hierarchy of order of best practice for patient safety. Now, I've opted to not have reconstruction seven years later. I just can't make myself go there. Maybe one day I will be ready, but right now I'm just so glad to be alive. I don't want to lose a minute in the hospital. And no, I, 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 one I other thing about the reconstruction piece of it, which is that um, it, it was really until we opened a clinic, and now there are a number of dedicated clinics around the country, um, that you had enough people where you could really answer the question, is reconstruction and IBC safe? And I think we're only now getting to the place where we have a real sort of rapid, large-volume number of patients where people have cautiously undergone reconstruction um, using techniques that don't involve sparing the skin and really being mindful of that diagnosis that I think we'll be able to say, yes, there really may be some situations where, you know, if you delay it and do it really cautiously, it's reasonable. But I think particularly in 2007, there wasn't, any way for anyone to know that that was an okay thing to do. And so I think we were a little bit cautious, and that may change in the next 10 years, but that was an aspect of it also. Well, we got some background uh, happy. I heard that's something. That's my daughter roaring in the background. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love we it. We can protect the children. That's perfectly fine. Let's get to the biology here because obviously – you know, treatments are only as effective as understanding the biology, how the body reacts, and all the other, you know, impl- uh, you know uh, facets of how other therapies are uh, may benefit or not benefit. Uh, 
So, Dr. Woodward, how is IBC, uh, IBC uh, treated, and um, what have what has like your research over the past couple of years shown, and how is it improving? Um, I think that the first thing that we have realized just doing population-based research is that even if you didn't do anything differently for IBC, you just said, here's what we know is the standard of care. You should have chemotherapy first. You should have a mastectomy and an axillary lymphoma section. You should have radiation. The vast majority of women around the country being diagnosed with IBC aren't even getting that. So to even start with saying there are clear NCCN guidelines that say what's the right management, and maybe because it seems off the wall to people or they don't have experience or it's outside of the box, it's really common for people to be getting something other than just good quality routine cancer management. So that's one real challenge, and we certainly see better outcomes, I think, than than really you see around the country because there's a, a real clear pathway to get patients in and start by doing the absolute, obvious, clear, basic standard of care um, the next thing that we really have focused on is can we bring new agents that um, hopefully are going to be unique and beneficial to IBC patients. And there's a lot of data from the lab about the role of a, a growth factor called epidermal growth factor for which there are a lot of clinical data. So that's a trial that's, that's um, ongoing. Uh, as Terry said, Massimo Cristofanelli's group has been looking at ALK inhibitors, has been looking at other um, drugs that are really driven by what people have learned about the biology. So there are new things that are are coming, but I think the first thing just across the country, whether you're in a specialized cancer center or not, is get the standard of care. I mean, get chemotherapy first. Have a good quality mastectomy. Don't skimp on the real um, bread and butter that's going to make a difference. So let's, let's talk about oh, oh, sorry, Sarah, go ahead. Yeah. I'm jumping in. One of the things that's so important, a lot of people don't realize that you can't diagnose inflammatory until stage three. So there's not a lot of time to mess around and and, and, and go, well, let's try this, let's try that. And so like what Dr. Wilber said, to get the bread and butter of what you need for your best outcome, I think is really important. And I'll let you take it back. But I, to, I don't think we've mentioned the, the stage three component yet. Yeah, these no, are all locally advanced stress cancers. They all need chemotherapy and before chemotherapy came on the scene, it was very common to just not be able to do surgery at all because the whole breast is involved. It's very hard to get around all that disease with negative margins and then close that incision. And so chemotherapy made a huge difference in being able to shrink those tumors, um, allow patients to get surgery, and then move on to post-mastectomy radiation as opposed to the 50s and 60s where people were really getting radiation up front just to try and control it for as long as possible. All right, so let me let me go back to then risk because clearly, if you don't even know you have it and what you do at stage three, is there any getting around that? Is this a genetic thing? Is there what what is existing in science now to help us look deeper into risk reduction? Is there is prevention even a word you can use with IVC? I think it may we may get there. Our, our group has done a number of studies in this arena, um, looking both at in the issue of prevention, we've looked at uh, matched case controls where we've said let's take patients who don't have breast cancer but are high risk and compare them to the inflammatory breast cancer patients. 
And what you find that's outside of the box for those um, patients is that they all tend to be, or a, a significant proportion of our um, experience is that they tend to be a little bit overweight. They are more commonly women who had multiple children and had them early, and they're more commonly women who didn't breastfeed. That's definitely not the case for everybody. Terry, I'll tell you, she's a, I, don't, I hope this is okay for me to share, she's a super breastfeeder. She's got five awesome kids. Um, so it's not the case for absolutely every person, um, but those were some of the things that we saw that made us start to think about, could there be um, issues that are going on in the breast before you ever get a breast cancer that actually prime that breast and make it sort of amenable to that cancer spreading in a different way instead of acting like a run-of-the-mill breast cancer? So is it possible that you have a a run-of-the-mill mutation event happened that might be any other breast cancer or might be an aggressive non-IBC breast cancer, but it happens in this setting where the breast didn't kind of settle back down to its baseline state after pregnancy for whatever reason. It might be not breastfeeding, but it could be something else. And that um, mutation immediately causes and allows those cells, instead of sitting there forming a mass, to really spread through the breast and get into the skin and behave in a different way. So one of the things that we're looking at is whether or not you can actually see some of those changes in the normal breast. Is that something you could screen for? Could you actually do normal breast biopsies and look and say, is there a picture here that's really indicative of people who have this kind of breast that's primed and ready for, for a breast cancer to turn into an inflammatory breast cancer? And could you do anything to quiet it down? You know, whether somebody breastfeeds or not is a really personal choice and you can't go back and change that choice. And, um, but can you calm whatever might have, have activated that breast, whether it's through uh, a drug like a statin is something that we're investigating or other pharmacologic interventions, can you find it and treat it is really where we're looking and what we're sort of thinking about moving forward. So, so, Terry, let's spend some time talking about the IBC network. You and I share a commonality where we, we are the accidental advocates, and I started Super Cancer Volunteering. Uh, fortunately, it turned into a job for me. You are very graciously still volunteering your time with IBC, but obviously we understand the need because it's such a niche community that needs support. But what, what do you do programmatically? Well, I basically treat my, my role here as a full-time job, plus I, I put in you know, eight to 10 hours a day about inflammatory breast cancer things. I First, what happened when I, I first tried to find others who had the disease I had, because all I could find was women mentioned in obituaries, you know, just sort of a passing reference type thing. And I started meeting, started finding bits of stories of women here that had lived. And uh, and there were ones that inspired me then, and I started pulling those women together. And that's what kind of led to the formation of the IBC network. When I realized how breast cancer in the breast cancer world, inflammatory was overlooked due to its rare status, but personally I don't think it's rare at all. I do think it's less common, but I don't, I don't know if I go so far as rare. In the lay community, rare means never. I think in the medical community, Dr. Wu would agree, it means less likely. You know, uh, and so somehow we get that sense of never. But we really don't know how many of us there are. We don't have a medical encoding or not track maybe the same way we might, the lay person might think of. And then I realized not only was there not tracking for us or organizations that were funding research for us, I found out it really was only kind of glossed over medical school. It wasn't taught in nursing school. And I realized there was just a whole endless amount of work to do. And so I filed uh, for a 501c3 and started raising money. And we actually funded our very first project 
before you even have our 501c3 approval. People really, it really resonated with people that we were a grassroots movement, we weren't keeping salaries, that we were flipping the money as fast as we can into research. And um, and we encompass all things with the IBC network. That's why we named it the network. We uh, w- didn't want to be the one-stop shopping of breast cancer kind of mentality, but we wanted to be a place where, okay, you need uh, support. You know, uh, Stupid Cancer's got, you know, the Peergram, Instagram thing uh, going on. I just blew that, but you know what I'm talking about. It's not ready yet, but, you know, the peer support thing you're developing or someone wants to fund research uh, somewhere, well, let's get some research together and how can we help that be funded? And that's led to, we run now support groups literally all around the world in multiple languages. We, um, any, pretty much any major news story about IBC lately, you can track it back to us. We are we put out um, 165,000 to research to date, but this morning we put out 45 more thousand. We're putting out 50,000 to Vanderbilt, and, and that's all kind of small money in some ways, but it's big money considered this is all grassroots and small donors. And now that we're in our third year, we've got a little history, and we can see how well we're resonating with people. We plan to go for uh, larger donations, and hopefully we can make it a more significant um, impact. But my favorite thing to do is to get women together who have inflammatory. I hate it that anyone has this disease. When I can get women together, like we did today, there was about 10 of us at Med and Philly who had never met someone else with their disease, and they could just share stories of hope or struggles or whatever. Or someone says, well, I was diagnosed seven years ago, and I'm clean of this disease right now. What that means that newly diagnosed, that is one of my most um, moving things I get to do. Um, but we're trying to hit you know, every level of what women's need. We're working on things legislatively. We're working on on things in support groups, working on research with the doctors. We spend a lot of time helping them with grants for, you know, how can we assist them. So it's really become quite a big ball of wax. So, Wendy, we can talk about some statistics. What are the, um, how many women are diagnosed each year with this? And what what are the, uh, is it increasing? Is it decreasing? What are the trends you've been seeing? And and, uh, where do we hope, obviously, this, this gets, it doesn't seem like it's going away, but Better treatments, better yeah. treatments. I think the estimates are that between two and four percent of breast cancer diagnoses will be inflammatory breast cancer. And ballpark, there are approximately a little less than two hundred thousand um, breast cancer diagnoses a year. Um, so, if you look at raw numbers, that's actually not an incredibly small number of women every year, but it's certainly the minority of um, breast cancer. One of the things that we found really striking is that if you look at the mortality amongst that small population, what you realize is that IBC actually accounts for 10% of breast cancer death, even though it's really, you know, as best we can measure, maybe 2% of the incidence. So it really speaks to the outcome uh, for this disease and that actually making a difference for inflammatory breast cancer would really have a dramatic impact on breast cancer mortality overall. Um, and I strongly suspect that, that some of the mechanisms that are at play in inflammatory breast cancer would actually play out in non-inflammatory breast cancer too, and you may find that some of those therapies would would cross over and, and make a difference there too. So it's, as Terry said, it's not, um, it's not rare per se. I mean, it's, you know, depending on how you define it, but, but there's a substantial number of cases every year. Um, and they, they really have disproportionately poor outcomes when you look stage for stage. 
Um, and, and Terry, have you seen your community continue to grow and grow? And, and there's just this endless, regrettably, and unfortunately, endless communities of women that are finding each other because of this incredibly rare, but not rare, subset of breast cancer. I do. Our, our support groups are growing daily. Like I said, we have them all around the world. And as a matter of fact, I, I attended a conference that was in Belgium last year, and Dr. Wilbert even was going to be there as a presenter. And we met with some women in the U.K. They were so desperate to talk to someone. And so now the IBC network is being mirrored in the U.K., and, and now we're being asked to start a similar organization in Australia. Women are literally coming out of the woodwork, saying, oh, my gosh, that's what I had, or that's what my, my sister had, and she passed away, and no one knew what I met, knew what, what she had, or talked about it this way. And so I hate to have anyone have this disease, but I'm always glad when someone finds me who does, because we can help them, and hopefully can help each other. And then now what I'm finding is a larger pink community is getting interested in saying, wait a minute, we've never heard of this. What can we do? For you, and so that's exciting to see that it's going past us. It's not my pet project; it's becoming a project that people are very interested in supporting research. So I'm very pleased about that. So we have like about two minutes left here, and I just want to get some of the key messages out to our listeners here. Uh, again, what are the the um, how can women know? more about their potential risk for this or what to look for or how to talk to their doctors or the role of primary care, first and foremost. Can we go, before we go to risk real quick, and just run through a list of symptoms? Because one of the things that's, that's difficult, I think, is, is what I hear from patients is their doctor said they didn't have inflammatory because they don't have that field of orange. And, you know, that's a very dramatic look. And some women get that way quickly, but that's not often the first place. And so they may have one breast that's swollen or feels warm to touch or has an infection, but they could also have a shooting pain or itchiness that just, like, they just want to scratch all the way through their back. And you, it, or a dimpling that's the field of orange or maybe a discolored nipple or flattened nipple or something like that. And some women do feel a lot, but only about 10%, I think, have a lot. When you can think about the fact that intense itching or a shooting pain, that's what we think about as breast cancer. And so, you know, I think it's first we need to know before we even get into risk factors is these symptoms are a little bit vague and changing. So I think any kind of a sudden change in one breast uh, would dictate a proper exam. And this first risk factors... About that, that um, that redness looks different in different skin tones. So what might be red on one woman's breast looks kind of brownish on another breast. But when you see that change in one breast, that it's uh, a change on the skin, it's swollen, it's discolored, definitely should prompt an exam. And it is absolutely appropriate if in a short interval that hasn't resolved to really push to have a biopsy, to feel confident that that's been evaluated pathologically because it's a way to do it. And um, have appropriate, you should still have the appropriate staging imaging, have a mammogram, have an ultrasound, repeat them if it's not resolving, um, do that biopsy. And if somebody says it can't be IBC, that's probably not true. Yeah. And, and so I know, and the risk factor, I don't know if we really know what risk factors are. I mean, Dr. Will mentioned being overweight or different things like that. But um, but still, I think sometimes we don't know what the symptoms are, and we think it, we chalk it up to all kinds of injuries or pregnancy changes because this is a younger woman's cancer. And cancer doesn't care if you're pregnant. And so you, maybe it's your first pregnancy and you've got one breast that's a little swollen. It'd be easy to chalk that off as to, you know, normal body changes. And so we just need people to be aware of those changes. 
Well, I think I the mean, other message to get out is just to absolutely yes. be sure you get standard of care. Right, and and obviously that is the biggest issue is primary care and standard of care, and everything's different everywhere. We see this mm-hmm. across every market, but it, I mean, again, it sounds to me like things are now that it's, this is a conversation, this is a, a dialogue, this is happening now. It, it's global. There's there's change coming, right? And I think we could all be positive down the road that when we get you back on the show a year from now, things will be even better than they are right now. Well, you're helping make right now, Matthew. I mean, you, you, you've you got a lot of young people listening, and, and that is how change is going to happen. So thank you. Absolutely. Oh, all right. Well, well, we've been talking about inflammatory breast cancer tonight. Terry Arnold is the founder and full-time volunteer of the IBC Network Foundation. Terry, what's the website and Twitter handle? It's a, it's the W's, uh, theibcnetwork.org, and our Twitter handle is TalkIBC. TalkIBC. And uh, Wendy Woodward is the associate. This is lengthy and exciting and, and sounds very academic. The associate professor in radiation oncology and the section <laughs> chief for the Breast Cancer Radiation Oncology Service at the University of Texas and the Anderson Cancer Center. Uh, thank you so much for joining us tonight, enlightening us to uh, the world of inflammatory breast cancer. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Take care. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Wendy Woodward and Terry Arnold. All right, folks, that's our show. Um, I think we wanted to make uh, a, a quick uh, acknowledgement to uh, Annie Goodman. Yes, we did. I wanted to thank her for her time here on the show and wish her the best in the future. Yes, Annie. I miss you. We do miss Annie. Annie Goodman. Uh, we're all drinking wine, actually, live here on the air, which is exciting. Um, and we're toasting to. We haven't slurred a single word. No, yet. we have what not. Sl- we are. We, we are... saw the closing sequence. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself. All right, to Annie Goodman and Clink. We love you. Cheers, Annie. Okay. Closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, folks, that's our show. Our 327th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did, smoking a stick at Stupid Cancer. We'd like to thank our guests, Holly St. Clair, Carrie Arnold, and Dr. Wendy Woodward. Next week's show should be a hit when doctors don't listen. Join us for a free 30-minute broadcast exclusive interview with Dr. Leanna Wen, acclaimed author of When Doctors Don't Listen, How to Avoid Misdiagnosis and Unnecessary Tests where we'll learn how to deal with a doctor who seems too busy to listen to you. Her eight pillars of a better diagnosis and more are going to be very exciting to talk about Survivor Spotlight on Deborah Evanstein. Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Podcast and Blog Talk Radio. Check us out anytime online at stupidcancershow.org and stupidcancer.org. Remember, folks, it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of myself and the Stupid Cancer News Team, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, Mallory Rivera, and Sean Shapiro, thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next Monday live at 8 p.m. And uh, have a great week tonight, folks.